Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org slash register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. We've been in a series that we're concluding today entitled A Deep Calling, and today's subject is to hunger and thirst, a deep calling to hunger and thirst. Luke chapter 6, which is where we've been at, Jesus has been displaying his his most intense teachings that we find here and in the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain. And um, as we conclude this, blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Luke 6, 21, blessed are you who hunger now. For you will be satisfied. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we come before you. And Lord, we are grateful, not only for these children that we see here and the blessings that that they are, but for all the many ways that you have blessed and and graced us, Lord. Father, for these tithes and offerings, whether they're offered today in person or online, we ask your blessing upon them. We ask they'd be used with wisdom and integrity for your purposes. And we give them to you generously and freely because you have given so much to us so graciously and freely. And I ask, Lord, now in this gathering that you would speak to us by your Spirit, empower uh, mere words to penetrate hearts and minds by the power of your Spirit to transform our thinking and our lives, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. There is um, something very strange that has happened recently in our region. Something I'll be honest, I do not understand. I do not comprehend it. Don't get it. It is causing people to go mildly insane. They are losing their minds. It is causing infrastructure confusion as regards travel and things of this nature. And I do not understand. But evidently, Chick-fil-A has come to Shelby Township. (laughs) And there are some people who are so crazy for this stuff that if you saw any of the signs or or the pictures, there were were cars all over the place up there. They actually shut down Shaner Road at one point in time. There's a few people that went up into that region just to go to the mall, something else, that have never come back. We don't know where they went. (laughs) And so uh, the restaurant opened evidently at 6.30 a.m., and by 11 a.m., lines were wrapped around every place by 11 a.m. There was a person that directing the motorists, a Chick-fil-A employee evidently named Mike Keelan, Kalen. He said, quote, I've been out here since 3.15 a.m. The first guest showed up at 11.15 p.m. last night. Why? Why would anyone do this? Okay, now, 
Rob Marcus, who's been a friend of mine for decades, um, actually brought me by uh, last week, I think it was or so, a, a breakfast chicken sandwich, okay, on a muffin, whatever there, biscuit. And it was great. It was good. Don't get me wrong. It's good, but you guys that are into this are insane. I would not wait, you know, 11 hours for this stuff. But there's something about our hunger, something about our longing, something about when we get an attraction to something, a desire for something, that we go to unreal lengths to fulfill that hunger, that thirst, that desire. What does this mean when we translate this into Jesus' words, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you'll be satisfied. C.S. Lewis made the statement once, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy that, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. N.T. Wright, another English writer, talked about our culture's longing for God's presence. He said, there is all the difference in the world between waking up in a single bed and waking up in a double bed with nobody on the other side. Many in our Western culture may be atheists or agnostics, but they still find themselves wondering why the other side of the bed still feels warm and the sheets a little rumbled. Blessed are you, Jesus said, who hunger now, for you'll be satisfied. And some will say, well, this is his intent to eventually satisfy people's materialistic needs. That there'll be a time in the future when no one will go hungry. And that could be the possibility, but it doesn't seem to be. Because in another place in Matthew where he's talking about the same thing in the same way and in the same process, he breaks it down further in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. There's something about when you're hungry, you've got to satisfy that craving. A person who's hungry is going to seek out food wherever they can. And if you're a Chick-fil-A freak, then that's where you go. If you have some other, you know, craving or item, you'll do what you can to fulfill that, and you're going to feel an emptiness inside you, a hollowness, until that need can be satisfied. Yeah, you can run for a while, you can, you can move for a period of time, but eventually, somewhere down there, you need to fulfill that or you die. I mentioned last week how we were involved in Russia for a number of years. And when we were there, it was during the Soviet time, and the Soviet system was breaking down terribly. It's not that way today, and so I, I love Russian culture and Russian people, and I, I love that. But when we were there, it was terribly uh, torn down. Food was just horrific for the common people, for the elite, something else, but for the common people, it was pretty bad. We would get this chicken sometimes, and we called it gray chicken because it was gray, and it was chicken. Chicken is not supposed to be gray. And so we would taste it. It was just bad taste. So we'd, we'd rip it up really good and cut it up really good and mix it around our plates so it looked like we'd eaten a lot. 
to try to not, you know, insult our hosts. Some of the other food I won't talk about. In one of my first times there, um, the only thing that was really readily available that was palatable was Pepsi Cola that they were importing and um, a type of chocolate mint, chocolate-covered mint, phaser mints they were called. And so after every quasi-meal that I got a partial of it down, I would take a couple of bottles of Pepsi and a couple of handfuls of phaser mints and I'd try to wash the taste out of my mouth and get something down. So after several weeks of phaser mints and Pepsi, I was doing great. <laughs> I was wired. I was so wired and so whacked and so empty inside. I, I remember to this day, even though it was several decades ago now, coming back into the U.S., coming through JFK, coming out of the gate there, and seeing this, this place called Pizza Hut. And I went and I got a personal pan pizza, and I remember holding it and just for a moment having a worship experience. And then I remember taking a bite of it. And I'm not kidding, to this day I still remember it. It was the most shocking thing. I didn't realize how bad off I was. I took a bite of it. And it was the most miraculous piece of food I had ever tasted in my life. Literally, I can recall the rush of every molecule in my body rushing to the tip of my tongue, sampling it, and then taking the message home. It was that intense. When we are hungry... There is something that drives us to satisfy that hunger, and hunger is natural in a healthy person. It can be intense. It can be a driving force. It often even is a sign of health. In our culture today, we're very distant from this concept. Until recently in the pandemic and the, the, the starving that went on oftentimes or need for food in a Western rich society, we know little of true hunger, of true thirst. Our wealth and our other things shield us from that emotion or from that feeling and from the depth of that. But in the time that was spoken now, they would have known hunger on a regular, consistent basis. It was a vivid illustration spiritually on something they would have felt all the time. They would have been one step away from possible starvation or the loss of their life. And so when he says, blessed are you who hunger now, for you'll be satisfied. And while he could have been speaking to materialistic, it was clear he was saying, look, at, for those of you in the same way that you hunger physically right now, for those of you that hunger spiritually, for those of you that have this gaping within you that only can be filled with God, and so you pursue and are thirsty and hungry for him, and you've been looking for him forever, he's here now. You're going to be satisfied. He goes on in that same passage, says, blessed are you who weep now. For you're going to laugh. Why would there be weeping? 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. When we are conscious of the emptiness inside us, of the gaping holes of our unsanctified and unholy lives, then yes, there's a hunger to have that filled, but there's also the weepingness at the emptiness, at the awareness of just how broken how ugly we are, how needful we are. And we can cover that up in a lot of different ways, but when it breaks through, it leaves us broken. But the good news is that godly sorrow brings repentance. That leads to salvation. That leaves no regret. No regret. Blessed are you who weep now, 
for you're going to laugh. There's going to be a time of joy coming in the midst of this. Psalm chapter 30, verse 5 says, Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning as we go through that dark night of the soul that the poet writes of, and as we become conscious of our need of the emptiness, and as in that broken moment, the Holy Spirit comes and fills us and redeems us and restores us, then there's a joy that comes in the midst of this. And so Jesus is talking about um, these things and contrasting them one to another. At one point in time, he goes on in this, and he says something else, though. He contrasts this thing of being empty, getting filled, hungry, getting fed, uh, weeping with laughter. He contrasts that with this series of woes. In chapter 6, verse 24, he says, But woe to you who are rich. For you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. And in this, he's not saying you're going, whoa, I'm going to get you guys. There is no sense of threat in this. It's a statement of regret and compassion. How unfortunate for some of you who are wealthy, for some of you who are well-fed now. Why? Because you're using these circumstances to obscure your real emptiness and situation. You fill your life with so many other distractions that you're not conscious of your real need. And so there's a sense of regret and compassion, not because you're wealthy, not because you're well-fed. There's no sin in that. But the assumption of the time period would have been if you're wealthy and well-fed, then you and God must be real tight. And Jesus says, no. Oftentimes, those things, it takes a great spirit to overcome those things and still hear the call of God because they insulate us. They block us from these understandings. And so what he's doing in the midst of this is completely flipping the understanding of how reality worked. He exalted what the world despises and rejected what the world admires. He turns things completely upside down. Too often, we are attracted to what this world offers, and it even permeates the church. Popular Christianity is rarely biblical, and true biblical Christianity is very rarely popular. In fact, I would say never. But we get so caught up with the world and the wealth and things around us that we lift those up and we place those in the center to be admired. And those are our heroes and those are the people we pursue, whether in the church or whether in the world as a whole. And Jesus flips this over entirely and challenges us in a deeper way. He goes further later on in this chapter in in Luke chapter 6 verse 31 and he changes things quite a bit when he offers this what's referred to as the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And we're very familiar with what this phrase is and, and how this operates. But what we're not conscious of is that this was a change from how this phrase was generally offered. The golden rule did not originate with Jesus Christ. It had been offered in several different variations over time, but it was always offered in the negative. You should not do to your neighbor what you would not want them to do to you. Probably has something to do with cell phones, I'm not sure what. But you should not do to your neighbor what you would not want them to do to you. 
like drawing attention to something like that. Well, maybe you're trying to lay under the radar. You shouldn't do that. Jesus had a significant advance in this, and he switched it around to a positive to say that we should do unto others what we want them to do unto us. It's not a matter of a negative, but now the positive. Rabbi Halil in the AD uh, 20 was challenged by a Gentile to summarize the law in the short time that the Gentile could stand on one leg. Reportedly responded this way. He says, what is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. Go and learn it. But Jesus is the only one that came along and broadened that out. It's the difference, as one writer put it, to not breaking the traffic laws and instead doing something positive like helping a stranded motorist. And so I'm not going to do this, but here I'm now positively going to try to treat others. Jesus flipped the entire world differently, changed us from passive to an active engagement. Now as he goes through all this teaching and all these processes of conversation, he then comes down to um, the final part of his teaching. Most of these things we have covered um, but this ch- part, we have not. In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you go to church every Sunday? Sing a song, drop something in the offering. We're told the Pharisees do that. We're told people who are distant from God even can do that. He breaks us down. He says, why do you call me this? Why do you engage in this appearance of worship? But you don't do what I tell you to do. And then he breaks into a three-step pattern. He said, everyone who comes to me, hears my words, and does them. Everyone who comes to me hears my word and does those things. Everyone in our country wants forgiveness. Everyone in our country wants a relationship with God, but very few are prepared to engage in a true relationship. When you break down these three phrases, come to me, is basically an act of surrender. So we come to Jesus. We're aware of the emptiness inside of us. We have perhaps a hunger and thirst, or at least a need, and we come to and satisfy this need of mine. They were always coming to him for bread and other things like that. Satisfy this need. I'll surrender to you. I want salvation. I want a different life. I want those things. But the next step, he says, and here's my words. That there's a sense of discipleship. If you count on what I am teaching alone to understand the things of God, you have a bit of a problem. You're seeing it through a specific gateway. Also, one day a week. To what degree do you pursue the words of God? Are you reading the scripture? Do you have a thirst or a hunger for you? Are you taking a a DBI class or or engaging in a Bible study or even just in the morning when you're waking up? Just read it. I don't understand all. Just read it but I don't always understand it. Just read it. But there's some parts I don't get. Just read it. There is a power in Scripture that can move past your understanding into your heart. 
And as you're reading those things, you're lodging something into your mainframe and into your programming that who knows in the future will trigger and that scripture comes out to give you direction or insight. It's not enough just to surrender to the ways of God, but we need to hear the ways of God and learn those. And then once we learn them, to do them. It's an act of obedience at that point in time. I'm supposed to live this way, but it's difficult to do those things. Not just to surrender. Not even just to hear, but to obey those things. If you came to Christ and you've surrendered your life before him, that's the beginning. It is not the end of what is to happen and take place. It's the beginning. Now, he walks through these entire passages of hunger and thirst and flipping reality on its head and, 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 and changing how we think in, in the positive and not the negative. And then he challenges us with the sense of surrender, this sense of hearing, and, but he puts it in a specific context. And it's the last illustration he offers in this teaching. What I just read, Luke chapter 6, verses 46, was in the uh, ESV. Let me read it in the NIV, Luke chapter 6, 47 through 49. As for everyone who comes to me, hears my words, and put them into practice, I'm going to show you what they're like. For those of us that have surrendered our lives, for those of you who hear these things, and then particularly for those of us who try to practice these things, stumbling, falling, not always understanding, but coming back to here again and standing back up and trying to apply those things again. When we're persecuted, when we're attacked, when we're misunderstood, when we just are plain stupid, that we come back, reacquire the understanding, and strive again. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and put them in, I'm going to show you what they're like. And he gives this illustration. He says, it's kind of like a man building a, a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. And when a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but couldn't shake it because it was well built. This is a person who's now surrendered their life, has not only heard the words of life, but has actually applied them, has dug down deep to hit that solid rock and build upon that. I love building sandcastles. I, I think it's because I have the constructive spirit and architectural mind, but I don't want to trouble with all the mathematics. And I can do it in a day. really meets my short-term goals. But I'll spend a whole day constructing an elaborate sandcastle. But my favorite sandcastles, the ones I've really just particularly had an affinity for, and I, I named them. I'm, I'm really I, Tintagel, you know, Camelot. Uh, you know, I, different names of different fortresses. My favorite years ago, though, was visiting my parents in Hawaii and being with the kids on the beach, and they've got lava just underneath here and there, and there was a rack of it right next to all the sand that was right here. And I remember taking that sand and, and taking it and shaping my castle on the nooks and natural crannies of the lava. And it was so cool and so neat, and I would cover it all over with sand. And it was great because when the sand bullies come along to knock down your castle, and they go kick it, and they break their foot. It's wonderful. <laughs> and that's not godly. That was flesh. But what I really liked about it was the fact that it would stand a lot longer 
and one that was laid on the shore and would wash away, that there was something, honestly, of these scriptures that penetrated into my mind. That as I'm constructing these sandcastles and I was working out details in my own life so many times, I'd be processing things the whole day, shaping and building these things, and in the same way I was hoping and praying, God, let what's shaping in my life be built upon a foundation that's not going to get washed away by the tide or knocked down by people. They were salvational moments in many ways. The writer goes on, Jesus is saying here, but the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house without a foundation. Who would do that? Who would do that? Without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Many of the houses we dealt with in Central America that were hit by earthquakes and, and landslides were ones that had no foundation and they were just wiped clean. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Whether we are building on a solid foundation or with no foundation at all is tested when the floods come. And floods come in different forms. Sometimes they're called pandemics. Sometimes they're called a job loss. Sometimes they're called divorce. Sometimes they're called another tragedy as we lose somebody or something close to us. And those things test what foundation we have built upon. To what degree we've established our life on something that is literally concrete and solid or have wasted ourselves, insulated by our wealth, forgetting the emptiness inside. There is a tower called the Millennium Tower. It's in San Francisco. And this story I came across years ago and has stuck in my head. It was in 2009. This thing was constructed. It was the tallest residential building in the city of San Francisco. It got a lot of numerous awards from its construction and, and everything else. So this is 2009. In 2016, people instantly this 58-story luxury place. You paid millions of dollars for a penthouse or for a condo in this prestigious, you know, place. 2009, 2016, people began to realize that the tower was leaning, that in fact it was sinking. And it was realized that the foundation of this tower had been built into deep, dense sand, but not bedrock. A lot of the other city, a lot of the other buildings in, in uh, San Francisco are, are they're down to the bedrock, but this was on a deep dense sand, and shockingly enough, there's several other well-known buildings that are also built on, on sand. Well, in this case, it didn't work out too well. It began to tilt dramatically. I remember reading an article where it was so bad that one of the people who was, there were a lot of lawsuits over it, paid $10 million for my place, and it's, and they would drop a marble on the floor, and it would quickly roll to one side. I mean, it was an obvious 18-tinge link. All the different things that entered into that moment. Is that our life? Is that how we're building? One writer says, the wise and the foolish man were both engaged in precisely the same avocations. The buildings in San Francisco looked the same. To a considerable extent, achieved the same design. Both of them undertook to build houses. Both of them persevered in building. Both of them finished their houses. The likeness between them is very considerable, though, despite that. 
And when the trauma comes, it doesn't last. What have you based your life upon? What is it that you have based your life upon? Well, for me, it's been pretty simple for the most part. I based my life on coffee. First cup of coffee I had, I was about seven or eight years old. Some of you know this. And it was Maxwell House, black, in a styrofoam cup. I was seven years old. It was over 20 years before I ever tasted coffee again. Black Maxwell House will do that to you. Some of you had a taste of faith and of Christianity years ago, but it was served up to you wrong. And it turned you off from faith going forward. I was in my late 20s when my wife and I were in Paris, and she's a coffee drinker, and she, out of a dispute that we were having at the moment, got me to have some really, really good coffee. A little bit of sugar, a little bit of milk. And um, since then, I have become what my wife refers to as a coffee bigot. Um, I like particular beans. I grind mine by myself. I measure them out carefully. I get pure water because water really matters. I put it in there. And then I do something that's unique to me. Um, I take, I don't like, uh, what do you call it, the uh, flavored coffees. They leave an aftertaste. And they're not real, okay? So all you artificial coffee drinkers, you know, there's a special place in hell for you. Um, <laughs> Just saying. Don't take it personal. And so I'll take a thin layer of cinnamon. Cinnamon to me is just, I can have cinnamon on everything. I have it on my cereal, I have it on everything. I'll take a layer of cinnamon right across the top. Don't mix it in, just lay it across the top. And the water filters through the cinnamon naturally, gives it a flavor, mellows it out, and what you have is a really, really good cup of coffee. Oh, boy. You guys just talk amongst yourselves, okay? For me, it goes deeper because coffee also is always linked to me with, with friendship and with people I care about, people I enjoy. Making a cup of coffee for them, whether it's 50 people in the house or whether it's two or three of us, it's just one of them. Now, here's something else. Years ago, back when Lakeside was young, I was walking um, on the lower section when... <laughs> caught a sniff of something. Oh, what is that? Oh, it was an incredible aroma. I, I walked inside to what was then Hudson's. Some of you younger will have heard of it as a legend. Uh, it's now Macy's, I think. And, and walked in, and I followed it upstairs, and I go out the front of, of Hudson's in, back into the mall. I went past off to the left. To the right, there's a luggage store. Off to the left was a, uh, um, a telephone, uh, mobile telephone store. Um, these things are marked into my mind. Because it was just past that mobile telephone store when my sense of smell took me to one of the most significant places on the planet. One of the truly great creations of Western civilization. Cinnabon. 
It was miraculous. The, the aroma of that had taken me in it, and I, I will confess, I, I bought one. I bought a dozen. I ate three of them there. And then I took another dozen home to share. <coughs> the share part was loose. There's something about the aroma of coffee. There's something about the aroma of the cinnamon. And there's a mating of those things that, for me at least, capture a longing or a desire. And that's an earthly thing. But I look at that in comparison to the hunger and thirst I sense in my soul at times. Some of you have caught drifting molecules of an aroma. You've had a sense of music in the distance that you can't quite put on. There's an emptiness or a longing or a hunger inside of you that nothing of the stuff that you grab hold of or achieve or try to fill it with satisfies. There's just that, that element. You know, there's, there's something else out there. And Jesus is coming and saying, look at that's me. There is an emptiness inside you because you aren't complete without me. For those of you that hunger and you thirst, no amount of Cinnabons and coffee in the world are going to satisfy this. No steaks, no chicken, no vegetarian diet, nothing of whatever you want to get in your most gastronomical dreams are going to satisfy this. And you can try to cover it up with all the things of wealth and all the things of this world and all the distractions you can fill, but at the end of the day, if you're honest, in that long dark night of the soul, you come down and you realize there's an emptiness. I hunger. I'm poor. And I weep for the awareness of who and what I am. And we sit in despair and we think that nobody notices and nobody cares and, and we're alone and on our own and that's all there is. And it was to these people that Jesus came and he said, blessed are the poor. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Blessed are you who are weep. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I satisfy in a way that nothing else will satisfy. Come, surrender your life to me. Hear my words. Obey them. Build a foundation. Respond to the deep calling of my spirit to yours. And all of us that hunger and thirst, we come. Jesus, there are times that I get so distracted caught up even with quote-unquote good things that I forget to just stop. And I, I fellowship with so many others, but do I fellowship with you? At times when it's late at night, I'm lying there, I feel your call. Lord, there are those of us in this room that so desire to be intimate with you, to know you, to build our lives 
upon you is to those individuals, Lord, this morning that we speak. If we've surrendered our lives, that's a big if, but if we have, then are we hearing? And if we're hearing, then are we striving within our best to do those things? What foundation are we building on? Is it on sand or is it on a deep bedrock that's firm when everything else crashes down around us? So, Father, we come before you. And, Lord, I thank you for the hunger and thirst that is within us that is satisfied in you. Lord, for any individual this morning who particularly made a commitment today in their own heart and mind just to follow you, to surrender to you, I pray, Lord, that you continue to grow them and to develop them. And for those of us who've been following for a long time, Lord, do not let us get ancient and any less hungry or thirsty for you. We honor you. We seek your face. And we thank you for being present with us here today. Go with us as we leave this place and continue to work in our mind and our heart, I pray. In Jesus' name. And the church said, amen.